Cristo. Ukrainians in the port city of Mariupol defy a Russian ultimatum to surrender over the weekend. What's known about those remaining to fight? For the moment, um, there are still very active fights inside the city. So street fights, uh, Russian forces are bombing uh, very actively the city. Plus, what does the sinking of a Russian ship last week say about Moscow's forces? They're still obviously having um, problems underestimating uh, the Ukrainians. You know, this is perhaps one of the lessons of the sinking of the Moscow. And later in the program, how those in Russia can circumvent Moscow's restrictions and get unbiased news about the war. Today is Monday, April 18th. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. Good evening. I'm Steve Miller. Residents of Mariupol walked past the bodies of civilians as they evacuated their destroyed homes on Sunday. As Moscow said, its forces had almost completely seized the port city. Reuters' Libby Hogan starts us off. Ukrainian soldiers resisted a Russian ultimatum to lay down arms on Sunday in the port city of Mariupol. Moscow said its forces had almost completely seized the city in what would be its biggest strategic prize of the nearly two-month war. On the streets of Mariupol, residents walked past rubble and burnt buildings, bodies covered in blankets as they evacuated their destroyed homes. One woman who gave her first name, Irina, was one of the residents fleeing. We came to get stuff out. Nationalists tried to break in. Looks like they failed. So we can get at least some of our stuff. We left our apartment wearing winter clothes. This was all we could get. Some Ukrainian fighters remained in the Avov-style steelworks, one of Europe's biggest steel plants, a maze of rail tracks, tunnels and blast furnaces. It has become the last stand for the city's outnumbered defending forces. Reuters has not been able to verify whether there are significant numbers of civilians still at the plant. Mariupol is the main port in the Donbass region and connects territory held by pro-Russian separatists in the east with the Crimea region that Moscow annexed in 2014. In other parts of the country, Russia continued its attacks in what it calls a special military operation to demilitarize Ukraine. Kiev has accused Putin of unprovoked aggression. In an Easter mass service in the northern town of Bucha, mourners prayed for their loved ones. Where a mass graveyard was found, 63-year-old Galina Bonda lost her son Alexander when fighting Russian soldiers. Three days ago, we buried him. My Sasha was 32 years old, a wonderful man, a patriot, wonderful son. Russia denies targeting civilians. Also on Sunday, shellings in Ukraine's second biggest city, Kharkiv, hit a residential building and a nearby hospital. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky said late night Sunday that 18 people had been killed and more than 100 wounded in shelling in the past four days in Kharkiv. 
And in St. Peter's Square, Pope Francis pleaded for an end to the bloodshed and lamented the Easter of war during his address. Reuters reporter Libby Hogan. Russian state television on Monday broadcast a video that showed two men who were identified as Britons who were captured by Russian forces in Ukraine. They were asking to be exchanged for pro-Russian politician Viktor Medvedchuk, who's in Ukrainian custody. Ukraine's security service published its own video that showed Medvedchuk suggesting that he be swapped for Ukrainian soldiers and civilians in Mariupol. Russia rejected a trade offer involving Medvedchuk last week. Anna Chervakova continues our reporting from Kyiv, where I asked her not long ago what's currently known about the besieged city of Mariupol. Yeah, Mariupol remain, remains under Ukrainian control, and um, Mariupol is really a very crucial point, and it's a crucial point for both sides. For the moment, um, there are still very active fights inside the city, so street fights, uh, Russian forces are bombing uh, very actively the city. Russian forces are also bombing uh, particularly the Azovstal plant, which is a, a kind of um, place where Ukrainian uh, defenders uh, are staying and where more than thousands of people, of civilians, are sheltering. So um, this is basically a point which is the most at the moment, but at the same time, it's under severe attack. Um, what we see as well that no humanitarian aid is allowed by Russian forces, no humanitarian corridors are allowed as well. So what we expect is that uh, the fight would intensify uh, together with the fight in the east in general. Now, Anna, as you mentioned, there is this expectation that fighting is going to intensify. Russia has also bombarded other cities, Lviv, uh, Kharkiv as well. What do we know about the missile attacks on those cities? Yeah, in the past couple of days, a lot of cities around Ukraine uh, were attacked. So Kharkiv is uh, under severe bombardment for the past couple of days. And uh, um, according to the official information, uh, what we know that uh, over 10 people are dead and over 30 people are injured. But again, this is not the final number. And uh, it, it's just in the past couple of days. So the main attack in Kharkiv is in the center part of the city, uh, in the civilian areas. And uh, uh, it's just going on. So Kharkiv is fighting back. But again, um, the bombardments are uh, intensifying. In Lviv, uh, suffered a lot today in the morning and during the night there were a lot of also sirens happening. Uh, again, uh, it's, it's the biggest, uh, really the biggest so far uh, attack on Lviv. Um, as we know, five missiles, five Russian missiles were fired at Lviv and four of them reached the city. Uh, reportedly, three rockets um, reached the uh, infrastructure of the train station next to the train station, uh, but the train station uh, continues to operate. And due to this, seven people are dead and 11 injured. Uh, three of them are in the serious condition. One child is also injured, and uh, this child is the uh, the child was evacuated from Kharkiv together with his mother. 
and unfortunately got under the attack in Lviv. Anna Chernikova is reporting from Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Russian President Vladimir Putin has claimed that the sanctions policy implemented by Western countries against Russia has failed. AP correspondent Charles de la Desma is up next. In a video address, Putin says the economic blitzkrieg strategy hasn't worked, adding the initiators themselves have paid a heavy price with inflation and unemployment growth and economic dynamics worsening in the US and the European countries. Putin then noted substantial inflation figures in Russia, calling for his government to support our citizens and help them deal with the wave of inflation. I'm Charles de la Desma. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Steve Miller. This weekend, Britain's defense ministry said that Russian forces were continuing to redeploy combat and supply equipment towards eastern Ukraine. In a security update that was posted on Twitter, the ministry said that Russian troops were committed to forcing Ukraine to abandon its Euro-Atlantic orientation and that strikes were being carried out throughout the east of the country as Russia plans to renew its offensive activity. Jenny Mathers is a professor at Aberystwyth University in Wales. And I began our conversation by asking Professor Mathers to explain, at this point in the war, the importance of Mariupol to both sides. I think the pre-Ukrainian part of the significance of Mariupol is that they are able to tie down a significant number of Russian forces. And I think we've even heard some of the defenders of Mariupol say this, um, you know, quite explicitly, that, you know, they're going to stay and fight until the end partly because uh, it means that Russian forces are not elsewhere bombing other cities. You know, if they, the more force that they can parry uh, it within Mariupol, uh, the less other cities in, in Ukraine are going to get hammered. So that's part of the part of the issue, ties up the Russian forces there so that they're less able to, to do damage elsewhere. Um, in terms of why Russia would want to take Mariupol, I mean, it's, it's a strategic position on the, on the seacoast there. And this is obviously part of their strategy is to move in from the east to consolidate the gains that they've already made in the Donbass and also push them further into the west, uh, and also to um, secure this line that they've managed to establish along uh, the southern coast, um, which sort of gives them that bridge to uh, to Crimea, um, but also it's, it's more of a way of establishing um, some kind of security on the coast, although ironically, of course, with the, the sinking of the Moskva, uh, that security is, is clearly only partial, but it's part of trying to um, give them a foothold on the coast so that they can um, hopefully, um, in their in their view, land some infantry um, and, and bring in some more forces from, from the sea. You mentioned that sinking of the Moskva last week and that particular situation. I want to ask you, you know, what does it mean for Russia to have lost that flagship vessel in the Black Sea to not have been able to take major cities throughout Ukraine like Kiev and to have to change tack to what they're calling liberating the Donbass rather than simply overrunning and taking over the country, which appeared to be Russia's plan from the onset. Mm, yeah. Well, in theory, um, this new task that they set themselves to secure the Donbass primarily should be easier because uh, you know, they've, they've had forces there for the last eight years. They're in a more uh, sort of um, dug-in position. And also it should be easier for them to get supplies uh, from across the border in Russia than it was uh, to supply you know, the troops that had moved down towards Kiev. Um, who would have to be supplied from, from Belarus. Um, so in theory, it should be easier. In practice, 
almost nothing has gone Russia's way in this war so far. And it has revealed a lot of issues um, that were really kind of mostly concealed from us over the last several years or that we just weren't looking closely enough to, to understand um, quite what the limitations were in, in the Russian armed forces when it came comes to things like planning and strategy, but also training of troops, the maintenance of vehicles, you know, attention to um, fairly humble but important things like uh, how many trucks they have and how easy they are, easily they are able to uh, deal with logistical issues and, and actually supply their troops with what they need, whether it's fuel, food, weapons, equipment, ammunition, whatever. So it looks as though they're going to continue to face a lot of these issues. Um, they're still having trouble getting their supplies sorted out, even though it should be easier from where they're they're operating from now. Um, they're still obviously having um, problems underestimating uh, the Ukrainians. You know, this is perhaps one of the lessons of the thinking of the Moskva. They didn't seem to anticipate that the Ukrainians might be able to threaten um, such a vehicle from, from where they were based. And yet they did uh, very successfully. So um, I'm not convinced that the Russians are doing a very good job of learning the lessons quickly. And I don't think that they're very well able to adjust on the fly. They're not quickly kind of dealing with the problems that they've had and, and showing us that they're going to dramatically uh, turn things around. So although they have plenty of firepower and they're able to do a lot of damage, even in the um, disorganized and, and fairly undisciplined way that they've been operating, I think nevertheless, you know, they're, they're really showing themselves to be struggling in, in many respects. And I think that's probably going to continue over the coming weeks. Moving away from Ukraine and into Russia, so to speak, uh, Russia has clamped down on dissent and especially free media since the onset of the war, although it does occasionally comment on losses uh, during the conflict. Um, and, and we're going to hear about some circumvention techniques in just a few moments. But I want to get your opinion on this. How concerning is it for Russian President Vladimir Putin to not only be fighting a military campaign, but also a domestic disinformation campaign? And, you know, what are the potential risks thereof? Well, I think this is really crucial for the ability of Russia to continue to pursue this war and the ability of Putin to uh, remain in power. Because, of course, you know, Putin needs hundreds of thousands of, of Russian troops to be able and willing to go um, to the front and, and fight. And he needs all of their families to be willing to support them to do that. And he also needs broader society to be willing to put up with all of the, the problems and the, the shortages and so on that, that the economic sanctions have produced. And so in order to do all those things, um, yes, there's a big crackdown on independent media. It's basically gone from Russia now. Um, it's possible if, if you're in Russia to get access to use uh, from outside. Um, so what Russia really needs to do is to not only clamp down on, on alternative sources of news, but to craft a message that's going to be convincing and persuasive and it's going to resonate with ordinary people. And what they've tried to do here is really to hark back to the Second World War, the Great Patriotic War, which was the you know defining national moment of unity, really, um, over the last perhaps 100 years. Uh, which which Russians can can still rally around to. This is a, a proud moment uh, in their history when they they fought off the Nazis, when they came back from a, a very um, disadvantageous position, uh, and and the country sort of rallied around together. Um, and the regime has been using the Second World War memory in very um, explicit ways. You know, obviously talking about you know, Nazis in, in Ukraine and, and denazification and so on. Um, but very much suggesting that you know this is the this is a war that this generation is fighting, which is very 
similar to the one that their perhaps great grandparents uh, bought before. And you know, using a lot of these same sort of language, using a lot of the same sort of symbols, um, you know, telling young people and including children, you know, that, that they are the heroes of, of today and tomorrow, just as their great grandparents were the heroes of the Second World War. Um, so you know, this is really the the key part, I think, of, of their message. Um, even more important than saying, you know, NATO is threatening us or Ukraine is threatening us, is, is harking back to the memory of the Second World War. And I think, you know, a lot is going to depend upon how persuasive ordinary Russians find this message as the war in Ukraine continues to go on and more and more Russian soldiers um, sadly are likely to be killed and injured. Speaking of NATO, uh, the war is also prompting Sweden and Finland to speed up their contemplation about joining the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, uh, something that Russia has responded critically of, and it would say would not only bolster its defenses around that region, but also possibly do so with the increase of nuclear deterrence. Now, Moscow has rattled its nuclear saber before, and that is something that the U.S. and other defense agencies have taken seriously, but what's your take on what it means for Russia's operations and plans moving forward to have done so? Yeah, of course. So what's really striking is that when when uh, you know Sweden and Finland have, have indicated that they're very seriously considering applying for NATO membership uh, and, uh, and considering doing this very quickly, very soon, um, Russia's first move was not to try and reassure them, was not to try and say, look, you know, we don't pose a threat to you. Um, you know, what can we do to, to persuade you that we're not going to attack you? Um, you know, we want to be your friends. There's been nothing like that coming from Moscow. Instead, it's all been about threats. Um, and even if the threats are not always explicit, they're not always necessarily say we will we will use nuclear weapons against you. Um, nevertheless, you know, that, that threat is always implied and it's always understood and heard behind uh, the things that, that Moscow says. And, you know, it really reflects the fact that, that Russia doesn't have an awful lot to offer, uh, certainly not countries in Europe at the moment, who see what they're doing in Ukraine. And so what they have to fall back on are these threats. Um, and, you know, this is basically taking taking the Cold War nuclear deterrence and, and stretching it a bit, because it's not simply about, you know, using nuclear weapons to deter uh, the United States or NATO from using nuclear weapons against Russia which is the classic you know, way that we understood nuclear deterrence during the Cold War. This is now much more about using the existence of Russia's nuclear weapons and the possibility that, that Putin might uh, choose to press the button to try and deter Western states from doing other things that Russia doesn't want them to do. And so, you know, deter Finland and Sweden from joining NATO, um, indicate to the West that if they continue to supply Ukraine with weapons, uh, there might be, you know, nasty consequences, these kinds of things. Um, so it's really, I think it's a reflection of how little there is left in the toolbox for Russia to reach for, that it has to reach for these kinds of things. Um, but also the fact that, that we're taking it all very seriously suggests that we're not entirely confident that, that Putin um, wouldn't push the nuclear button over an issue like this. And this is quite a bit different, I think, from the way that, that East and West uh, regarded these issues during the Cold War, when we didn't really think uh, that Brezhnev, for example, was going to, to use nuclear weapons in a deliberate sort of a way. You know, we were concerned about things like accidents or misperception or you know, geese flying across the, the radar and, and, and triggering uh, some sort of an automatic response. We weren't really thinking that 
you know, Moscow would seriously attempt to use nuclear weapons in a circumstance like this. Jenny Mathers is a senior lecturer in the Department of International Politics at Aberystwyth University, which is located on the west coast of Wales. Professor Mathers, thank you very much. Great, thanks a lot. To keep citizens in Russia from receiving uncensored news about the invasion of Ukraine, President Vladimir Putin has blocked most independent media in the country. VOA's Igor Siganeka describes ways to get around those obstacles. To keep citizens in Russia from receiving uncensored news about his invasion of Ukraine, President Vladimir Putin has blocked most independent media in the country. Experts believe the crackdown on the free flow of information will only worsen. But does it mean Russian citizens will have no access to balanced news? Well, not quite. Internet circumvention tools help audiences bypass censored information and access websites and news sources that are officially blocked. Here are some of the most popular and effective ones today. Virtual Private Network, or VPN, is arguably the most widely used circumvention tool. It works by creating a private tunnel between the user's computer and the internet that disguises the user's IP address and prevents others from seeing their web browsing or downloaded content. Because the information in the tunnel is encrypted, neither the internet service provider nor the government can monitor it. Just make sure to use a VPN that has been vetted by experts. That likely will rule out a free VPN provider that makes money by selling its clients' data to third parties like a government. Another easy way to circumvent state internet censorship is to use the free internet browser Tor, which stands for the Onion Router, because it creates layers and layers of encryption around the content you send and receive. Tor makes it impossible for the authorities to distinguish between permitted and prohibited websites that you visit. The websites also have no way to identify the user. VPN and Tor operate in different fashions. While a VPN encrypts and directs your data using a centralized network of servers, Tor is a decentralized tool operated by volunteers. But what if an authoritarian government completely cuts users off from the outside Internet? Well, there is always the satellite Internet. It's a technology that has been around for decades. Essentially, it beams data not through cables but from radio signals traveling through space. It involves stations on the ground that broadcast the signals to satellites in orbit, which are later relayed back to users on Earth. The largest constellation of such satellites today, around 2,000, is operated by Elon Musk's Starlink project. Customers can access the network using a kit sold by its parent company, SpaceX. The kit contains a small satellite dish with mounting tripod, a Wi-Fi router, cables, and a power supply. Now there is also, of course, the shortwave radio. Popular during the Cold War, this type of communication is one of the cheapest and most effective ways of relaying information around the world. Shortwave broadcasts can easily be transmitted over a distance of several thousand kilometers from a single transmitter. The radio receivers are usually quite affordable and can be found at most electronic stores around the globe. With the advent of the internet, the audience for these broadcasts has dwindled in most regions of the world. But as experts note, a new wave of censorship in some countries could help revive the technology for a new generation. There are also some circumvention tools that emerged right after the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. One of them was developed by a group of Polish hacktivists called 
Squad 303, who broke into and then downloaded a database of nearly 140 million Russian email addresses and 20 million cell phone numbers. It later set up a website that randomly generates phone numbers and email addresses from that Russian database. The idea is simple. Anybody in Russia or around the world can go on the website and start calling, emailing, or texting complete strangers in Russia and talking to them about the Kremlin's invasion of Ukraine. The founders of the project say millions of Russians do not know the truth about the causes of the war and that the world needs to convey that information to them. That was from our New York Bureau with VOA's Igor Sikaneka. That'll do it for us today. Be sure to stay up to date with our continuing coverage not only on Ukraine, but news and events from around the world. You can do so 24 hours a day at voanews.com as well as on our social media platforms. Just follow VOA News. On behalf of our entire Flashpoint Ukraine team, thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm VOA's Steve Miller. Be well, be safe, and good night.